Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Norton. I'm one of the pastors um, here at New Denver Church, uh, but I also um, love history, and I teach history uh, just down the street at the University of Denver and also at Denver Seminary. Um, and so I'm always reading new books about times in history. Um, lately, I've been reading a whole bunch of books about Vietnam. I'm teaching a new class on Vietnam starting in January at DU. Um, but uh, several months ago, I read a book about the medieval era, and it just really uh, captured my attention. Um, and I want to tell you a little bit about it. The book is called uh, Medieval Wisdom for Modern Christians. It's by a historian, a, um, a very well-respected historian named Chris Armstrong. And I should warn you, uh, before you write it down and order it, um, it's fairly academic and technical. Uh, so, um, so you might enjoy reading it if you're into those kind of things. But, uh, but here's the general premise. It's pretty straightforward. Um, based on the title, uh, most of us today write off the medieval era as this time of the dark ages, right? And there's castles and crusades and the plague, which wasn't fun. And, uh, and, and yet Armstrong suggests that there are some things that people of faith today could learn from people of faith in the medieval era. There's uh, some qualities we could learn. There's some wisdom that we could find from them. And he leans pretty heavily into a guy named C.S. Lewis, who you've probably heard of, and, but don't know that C.S. Lewis was first and foremost a scholar of medieval literature and medieval history. But here's um, what I was struck by. There was one idea in particular that Armstrong shared in this book, and it was an idea I couldn't stop thinking about. It was in the introduction of the book. It's right in the, the, the very beginning. Um, and it put, uh, it, he shared this term, um, and it put, to, uh, it put some language to something that I've been thinking about for a long time. It, 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 it gave some thoughts to some questions that, as a pastor, I've been asking for a long time. And I think it even speaks to some questions that all of us potentially ask from time to time. Questions like these. Maybe you've asked these. Why do I sometimes feel so distant from God? Why do I often come to church and the music and the sermon don't really do anything for me? Why sh what, do what should I do when I don't feel the same joy or excitement or conviction or inspiration that other people seem to feel about God or Jesus or the Bible or church? Here's a few more questions. Why is it really tempting to sleep in on Sunday, to watch TV, to clean the house, to go to a park or go to the mountains, or do anything other than go to a church service? And I'm tempted sometimes to do that. Like this morning, maybe I should just stay at home and Dan can preach. Um, why do many of us attend a specific church for a few months or a few years, and then when the novelty wears off, we look for a new church, or we simply stop going altogether? Why are many people who are raised going to church not going any longer? Why is it more appealing or easy to be spiritual rather than religious? So those are some really big questions, and I happen to think they're all connected. Now, I don't have... Um, answers to every single one of those questions, and I think there's a whole lot of layers to all of those questions, but I do want to explore one answer this morning, or one layer in particular, and it's found in this idea that I think most of us are not aware of. It's an idea about how we think differently today 
than people did back in the medieval era. How we think differently about the world, about our lives, and particularly about God and faith than people did a long time ago. So here's what I want to do. I want to just introduce you to this idea uh, today, and if I'm honest, the entire sermon is going to feel like the introduction to a sermon um, today. We're not going to look at a specific passage of the Bible like we usually do. We usually, that's, that's sort of our habit and pattern here during the sermon, to, to look at one particular passage of the Bible and try to explain it, talk about it, think about it, reflect on how it might apply to our lives. We'll jump back into that pattern and practice uh, next week. Um, but instead, today, I just want to raise a whole bunch of questions and I'm not going to give of many answers, and uh, I'm going to leave us hanging a little bit, and then you'll just have to come back next week, um, because for the next three Sundays in this month, we're going to unpack some potential answers to those questions, and we'll tease out what some of this might practically mean, and some practical things that we need to start thinking about, and maybe even doing in our lives differently. So, Let me start with this big idea I want to introduce you to. Armstrong suggests that one of the best words to characterize our modern American culture and even modern American faith is the word immediatism. Immediatism. And I know that sounds kind of strange and academic or technical, and I'm going to unpack it um, and explain it, and you'll see how it's pretty self-explanatory and obvious what it means in just a second. But I'm going to give you four definitions, and the first three are straight from Merriam-Webster. They're just straight from the dictionary of what this word means. And then the fourth is one that Armstrong in his book offers. So here's the first definition of immediatism. It's, number one, immediateness. Or the quality that makes something seem important or interesting because it is or seems to be happening right now. This clearly describes our culture, doesn't it? Right? Our fascination with what's new and what's novel, right? Yesterday's news, yesterday's fashion, yesterday's TV shows, they're so yesterday, right? Or so 10 minutes ago. And we joke about this, but we're all somewhat obsessed with any ideas that are new, any experiences that are new, any products that seem new or novel. This is the spirit of immediatism. Here's a second definition for you, uh, again, from Merriam-Webster. Number two, it's a policy or practice of gaining a desired end by immediate action. Immediate action. This is the habit we have of wanting to see immediate results by taking immediate action. And historically, this has actually been applied to social justice causes. Um, Before the Civil War, uh, Abraham Lincoln had this idea, even before he became president, that we should do something about slavery, particularly in the South, but the best way to deal with it is to just let it die out on its own. It'll eventually not become economically viable, and people will realize there's moral problems about it, and it'll just die out on its own. But then there was this other group of people, they were called abolitionists, and they said, no, 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 we have to do something about this immediately. We have to take action immediately and pass laws and outlaw this immediately. That's the only way to get real and immediate results. And this is often a a big debate within social justice causes of how do you tackle issues. And a lot of people say you deal with them immediately. You have to do something about it immediately. But it doesn't just relate to justice causes. This immediatism is the spirit of our lives. It's this compulsion to address whatever it is we desire, whatever it is we want, whatever it is we think we need with 
immediate action that will produce immediate results. We want something to happen now. We don't want to wait for something to happen. Here's a third definition from the dictionary, and it's a bit philosophical. Number three, an epistemological theory that views the object of perception as directly knowable. Now, don't let those sort of big words scare you. Um, Epistemological is just a fancy-sounding word that means how we know things. It's just how we know things. And there was this this, uh, specific trend that took place in the 18th and 19th century. Um, It was a new philosophical trend that basically said you can know and understand something just by experiencing it or looking at it or studying it yourself. So um, if I want to know uh, what this water bottle is like, all I need to do is look at it and use my common sense and my mind and my reason and maybe play with it for a few minutes and experience it. And pretty quickly, I know and understand what this water bottle is like. And I understand water water bottle-like essence, you know? Like I understand what all water bottles might be like just by experiencing it. So knowledge about something is immediately accessible to anyone who wants it. But here's the fourth definition, and it flows from the first three, and Armstrong coins it, and it's related to faith, and it's this. Immediatism is for a way to God without mediation. Meaning, God himself, just like this bottle, is directly knowable. He can be directly experienced. You can sit in your chair right now and you can pray to God and he can and he will hear you. There's no need of a mediator. There's nothing standing between you and God. And in fact, the apostle Paul even talks about this one time. Paul was a leader in the early Christian church and he wrote a whole bunch of letters in the New Testament. And in one of those letters, he wrote to another leader named Timothy and we won't read it today. You can go back and read it yourself. But he wrote at one point, he said, there are no other or there are no mediators between us and God. There's only one mediator and it's Jesus Christ himself. That's the only mediator, but there's no other mediators. And because Jesus is basically God, he was saying, there's nothing that stands between us and God. There's no broker that we have to go through. There's there's no barrier between us and God. Another writer in the New Testament says, in fact, we can walk right up to God, boldly and confidently. And the picture is like God is sitting on a throne like a king, and you don't have to check in, and there's not other people you have to walk through to get to him, and you don't have to make an appointment with someone else or walk through. Like, you can just walk right up to the throne and talk directly to God. In fact, Paul would also say, there's nothing. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's nothing that separates us from God and from his love, right? And if you step back for a second and think about it, that's what this word immediate actually means. It means there's no mediator. It means unmediated. It means there's there's nothing that stands between you and something else. There's no time. That's what immediate means. It means something happens instantaneously. There's no time that passes between, between now and when the thing happens that I want to happen. There's no time. There's no person. There's nothing that I have to get through or go through There's no broker. Immediate means there's nothing that stands between you and the thing that you want to know and experience, including God himself. But what happens to your faith 
when the God who is supposed to be immediately knowable is not? And what happens to your faith when the God who is supposed to be immediately understandable is not? And what happens when he's supposed to be immediately experienced, but he's not? What happens when you show up at church and you don't immediately feel anything new? You don't experience anything new? You don't come to learn or know anything new? Well, that becomes a significant problem because our lives and our culture and our entire way of thinking is shaped by this spirit of immediatism, this desire to want things and have things right now. If I want a new set of AirPods, right, I can just pull out my phone and I can go on Amazon and I can order them. And it used to take several days, but if I'm a Prime member, it only takes two days. And now you can even get it with one day shipping. And now there's Prime now, two hours it will be there. And pretty soon there's going to be drones dropping things off in 10 minutes, right? And I don't have to go to a store I don't have to talk to anyone. I don't have to pull out any physical money. Why would I use that? Like I can literally just have this desire and it can be almost satisfied immediately. But it's not just about new products. It's not just about buying things. It applies to our entire way of thinking and living, even when it comes to our faith and when it comes to God. And we don't even realize it. It's just the ocean we are swimming in. But if any one of us could be transported back to ancient Israel, or maybe back to the medieval era, we would quickly see that most people for most of human history have not swum in this ocean of immediatism. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a peasant, and you live in southeastern France in 1400 AD. If you're one of those people, the only way to access God, the only way to know God, the only way to experience God is through mediators. You see, you have to go to a church building to worship God. You have to confess to God through a priest. You have to pray to God through the saints, You have to receive grace from God through a set of sacraments. You have to understand the worship service through a language that you don't even speak, Latin. You have to understand the stories of the Bible through the art and architecture of the building that you're in because you don't read. In fact, you have to understand what's true and what's not true, what God's will is and what God's will isn't, what pleases God and what doesn't please God through the teaching authority of the Pope and through the state government authorities who enforce what's right and wrong and what's true and what's not. You see, the idea that any medieval person had direct access to God without mediators, unbrokered, unmediated, immediate access would have been crazy. The only way to access him, the only way to experience him, the only way to know and to understand him would have been through a plethora of mediators. So what happened? How do we get from there to here? Well, a lot of things happened in the last 600 years. So I'm going to fly through them really quickly and tell you what I think contributed to us living in a very different mindset and culture today. 
steps forward that in taken in each of these steps taken um, individually seem like good steps forward in progress. Let me tease some of them out real quick. In the 1500s, something happened called the Protestant Reformation. And the Protestants came along and they changed a lot of things about medieval Catholicism, a lot of the abuses that they saw and a lot of the things that they believed were wrong. But here's a few things that were really important that they changed. First, they rejected saintly mediation. Meaning the reformer said it was it's okay to honor and respect these saints that went before us, but you don't have to pray to these saints and you don't have to pray to Mary in order to talk to God. They also rejected priestly mediation. They said that uh, priests and pastors are still useful, right? That's nice. Uh, but but the, they don't stand between you and God. If you want to confess your sins, you don't have to confess to a priest or a pastor. You can just confess them directly to God. They also rejected sacramental Mediation. So before this time, in the medieval church, they said there were seven sacraments, and the seven sacraments were the specific ways that you could receive God's grace in your life. And these Protestant reformers came along and they said, well, first of all, we don't think there's seven, and they threw out five of them. They said, these five seem kind of bogus, and we're just going to throw those out. There's actually only two. And in fact, the two that we're left with, they said, we don't even think that they're the only and necessary ways that we can receive God's grace into our life. So that was a huge shift. And then there was the 1600s and the 1700s. And this is when uh, churches started rejecting government and state control. You see, before this, the thinking was that God used kings and princes and governments and states to enforce what was true and what was not, to enforce what the Pope said was true and what was not true, but Protestant Christians started saying, not only do we not want the Pope to control us anymore, we don't think that states and governments and princes and presidents should be telling us what to do with our faith. And so our very country, the United States of America, was founded on this principle, right? The separation of church and state, which is basically just another way of saying we reject the mediation of the state in our faith affairs. And then in the 1800s, in America, some huge changes took place as the nation expanded, particularly west. The rugged individualism of the pioneers and the frontier seemed to shape the entire culture of the nation, and it shaped some of the biggest religious movements during the 1800s. The biggest religious movements were the Baptists and the Methodists and the Presbyterian churches that swept across the nation and created these massive denominations, and they were shaped by this individual and maybe more than anyone else. Also, before this time, uh, pastors were highly educated people. <laughs> they learned Greek and Hebrew and Latin, they went to Harvard or Princeton or Yale. They came from upper-class families. They had to come from wealthy families to be able to pay for that kind of education. And to be a pastor was one of the highest vocations in society. And so they were these upper-class, elite, highly educated people. But as Americans began to settle the frontiers in places like Kentucky and Missouri and eventually places like Colorado, there were no educated elite. There were no people like that. There were just these itinerant preachers that went around on horseback launching these revivals. And there were common people teaching the Bible to peep other people, people who had no training, people who had no education whatsoever. 
And along with this was that philosophical trend that I mentioned before where people began to believe you don't have to go to Harvard or Princeton or Yale to understand the Bible or to understand what God is like. It's like a bottle, right? You can just look at him and you can experience him and you can just use your mind and your common sense, your reason to understand what God is like. This was also a time of ecstatic experience. The 1800s was this time of miracle workers and revival movements. It's when the seeds of the modern Pentecostal movement were sown, if any of you grew up in that tradition. It was also a time when a young man named Joseph Smith from western rural New York who had no formal education saw a vision and then launched a massive religious movement that's founded on this idea that you can have this internal burning sensation in your heart and that's your experience of God. And then we get to the 1900s. And this is where mass culture and personal consumerism took hold of the nation and they profoundly shaped American faith. You see, Americans, or at least Protestant Americans, which was most Americans at this time. We no longer needed the Pope. We no longer needed the saints. We no longer needed the sacraments. We didn't need the government. We didn't even need the upper class educated either. We just wanted a personal relationship with God that worked for us, that met our needs, that did something for us, just like new TVs do something for us, just like those new automobiles that everybody can have does something for us, just like those new personal computers can make your life so much better. And so churches figured out, in whatever way that we can help people experience a personal, private, immediate, unmediated relationship with God, we should do that. So pastors and churches set out to give people what they wanted. So this is a picture of uh, Garden Grove Community Church in Southern California from 1961. Um, Garden Grove was actually started in uh, 1955, just a few years earlier, in Orange County, in the same year and about a mile away from another attraction in Orange County, Disneyland. Garden Grove grew so quickly that they built a massive new sanctuary in 1980 and changed the name to the Crystal Cathedral. But I want to go back to the earlier picture because I want to point out one of the things that made this church so unique. It had traditional seating inside, right? But it also had a drive-in parking lot. And they would open the doors there. You can see on the left to the outside, so that if you wanted, you could simply drive up, you could stay in your car, you could listen to the worship service, and then you could leave without ever talking to a single person. And we laugh a little bit, but that's pretty darn convenient, let's be honest. I mean, who wants to walk in a Starbucks anymore, right? We look for the drive-in Starbucks, because they're so much easier. How easy is that? You can just come to church and you don't even have to get out of your car. You don't have to get dressed. You can listen to the sermon. You can listen to the music. You don't have to talk to anyone, right? I mean, the only easier thing that I can think of is if they figured out a way to somehow stream their church services online so that you could have like a personal device and lay in bed and attend church. Wouldn't that be awesome? But remember... 
It's a culture of immediatism that has developed over the decades and over the centuries that says the most important thing is my individual immediate, which remember just means unmediated relationship with God. Now, let me um, tease out some of the hidden implications of immediatism. And first, let me be super clear about this. Um, Decisions and changes and developments that take place within history are rarely all good or all bad, okay? Um, Hitler, yes, all bad, okay? So there are some, but for the most part, things that take place in history are not that black and white. There's all sorts of causes and effects. And over the next four weeks, as we talk about immediatism and what that means in our lives, I'm not suggesting that it's all bad. Many of the developments that I just flew through really quickly, taken individually, were good developments and had good intentions and brought about good results. Right? I personally believe you don't have to pray to saints or pray to Mary in order to talk to God. I personally think that the separation of church and state is a good thing, even if the church is persecuted by a hostile state. And here at our church, New Denver, we think it's important to remove barriers, to make it easy for people to connect genuinely and authentically with God. But along with all the intended results of so many of these changes over the centuries often come unintended consequences and hidden implications. And the hidden implications are the ones we don't know about, and that's what makes them so dangerous. And so I want to tease out a few of those today. Number one, we have a very individualistic faith. We just do. And it's so individualistic, it would have been entirely foreign to all of Jesus' earliest followers. I mean, the idea that you can have a personal relationship with God, which, by the way, the phrase relationship with God doesn't even show up in the Bible. The idea that you can have a personal relationship with God apart from church or apart from other people or apart from any sort of mediating authorities in your life, how would have been foreign? That's not found anywhere in the pages of the Old Testament or the New Testament. And we don't often take how seriously we are, how individualistic we are, how seriously of a difference that is from ancient people of faith. Second implication, number two, we are rarely committed to the church in any strong sense. And by that, I mean, I think most of us are committed to church in the way we're committed to a restaurant that we like right? We like the food, and it's good, and so we go once in a while, and we might even tell friends about it, but that's about it. And we would never use the word commitment to talk about a restaurant we like, and yet our level of engagement with the local church is usually not that different from our level of engagement from the restaurants that we like to visit. And I'll share in a few weeks how I learned a different perspective on the church And I'm not saying this just because I'm a pastor and I have to be here every Sunday, and I kind of do, right? I actually learned a different perspective on the church because somebody else had to teach me a countercultural perspective. 
Number three, third implication. We equate experience of God with feelings. Did the service or the music or the sermon make me feel something? And if I didn't feel anything, well, I didn't really experience God. If I wasn't moved, if I, if I wasn't challenged, if the sermon was kind of boring, if I didn't really learn anything new, if nothing novel happened, right, if, if nobody raised their hands, if there weren't any amens, if people weren't crying or rededicating their lives to Jesus, if the service was just sort of same old, same old every single week, then I often leave thinking, I didn't really connect with God today which relates to the next hidden implication. Number four, we believe that faith has to make sense to me now. That's the reason part. And I have to feel it now. That's the experience part. And so we falter when reason and experience do not meet our immediate expectations. Isn't that true? I mean, we expect things to make sense now. We want an answer to everything now. In an era of Alexa and Siri and Shazam, right, and the internet, and, and just, I mean, we can get any answer to any question we have at our fingertips, right? We just expect that that also applies to God, that he should make sense. The things that are happening in our lives should make sense immediately. And so I want them to make sense immediately, and I want to experience things immediately. I want to pray for peace and get peace, like at the end of my prayer, right? I want to pray for answers to all of my questions, and I want God to provide the answers to my questions, just like Siri would at the end of my prayer. And when I don't get those answers, or when I don't get that peace, or when I don't have that experience, the only conclusion I can come to is something's wrong with me, or more often than not, something's wrong with God. But what if this culture of immediatism has so shaped my perspective and my assumptions and my expectations about everything, including God himself, that I can't even step back to realize how unreasonable my expectations are, how self-centered my assumptions are. Here's another, number five. We believe growth should happen quickly easily and immediately, right? We identify something that's wrong in our lives. It might even be something personally wrong with me, a weakness that I have, something that I keep stumbling over, right? And I think that if I want something to change bad enough, then growth should basically happen immediately. It should change, right? And remember, immediate just means without a mediator, so I want it to happen without any time. I want it to happen quickly. I want it to happen without any work. I want it to happen easily. And I want it to happen without any outside mediators or any outside people or things helping me. I want it to happen immediately. I want to be able to do it by myself. But what if that's not how things grow? What if all healthy things in our world grow with lots of time Lots of work and lots of outside help and mediators. Any farmer or gardener can tell you this is true, right? Any parent who's tried to grow their child to be somebody can tell you this is true. And yet, we're still obsessed with the immediate. We still believe that growth should happen in our lives quickly, 
easily and immediately. Here's the last implication, and I'll wrap up. Number six, we arrogantly distrust and reject all mediators of faith. Now, maybe you distrust um, mediators of faith because you're a really good and theologically sound Protestant, right? Um, Maybe it's just because you're a good American, And as Americans, right, we are free and independent and we do what we want and we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, right? Maybe it's because you grew up in an age of Vietnam and Watergate and you learned that people, especially those in authority, tend to lie to you a lot. Or maybe you're a Gen Xer or maybe you're a millennial and your entire life you've been advertised to and marketed to and everybody thinks they have a solution to every problem you have and you've learned not to trust any of them because they're really just trying to sell you something that you don't really need. And so when anyone or anything promises to help you in your relationship with God, you don't want to have anything to do with it. Now whatever it is, Probably at some level, all of us today have this deeply held belief that we're not even aware of that it's just me and God. It's just me and him. And I don't really need the Pope, and I don't need the church, and I don't need other people, and I don't need other stuff helping me out because they'll just get in the way. And so I intentionally put the word arrogant up there because I thought it would be good to provoke us a little bit. Because that's arrogant, isn't it? I mean, to to have this feeling that I can do anything I want on my own, that I can understand and experience God on my own and I don't need anyone or anything else, I'm self-sufficient, right? Isn't that arrogance? So let me stop right there. I've hopefully given you a lot to think about. I've raised a lot of questions I provided zero answers. In fact, I might have raised more doubts and questions. Are we going to become a Catholic church? Right? Like, what is happening here? Um, No, uh, we're not. Uh, Because there are some mediators that are barriers between us and God. It's good that we no longer have some of those barriers. But is it possible to use a cliche that we threw out the baby with the bathwater? Is it possible that in our embrace of what's new and what's novel and what's immediate that we actually lost some really important mediators of faith? What if our faith can? What if our faith should in certain times and in really certain important ways? actually be mediated? What if there are some mediators that we need to reclaim? So that's what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. I'm going to tell you some good stories. We're going to dig into some specific stories and passages in the Bible that really hit at this idea. And then we might even experiment with some new practices along the way that help us recover a mediated faith. So let me pray for us.
Lord, I pray that um, this would be a, a place uh, where we can just pause and reflect on our lives and reflect on the way that we think about you and the way we relate to you. And that those ways that might be unhealthy, um, we'd be able to just name and offer up and surrender. Um, and God, when you're not moving in the way we want, when you're not revealing yourself to us in the way we want, when, when faith or life is boring or not splashy, um, would you help us to see you in the details, in the mundane in the long practices that truly do transform us? Would you help us to wait on you when we need to wait on you and trust in you when we need to trust in you? We pray all this in your name.